good afternoon and welcome to Talk of the Towns. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is aired on WERU Community Radio since 1993, dedicated to the proposition that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the virtual studio and you who are listening create a kind of dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. Liz Graves and, and I, Ron Beard, are your hosts, co-hosts. Um, Liz is, is away this week, but we hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. And a reminder that we are recording this show in advance and won't be taking any calls um, today. Well, this afternoon, our our hope is that this conversation is coming um, as the result of a new novel uh, by Roxana Robinson, our guest. Roxana is a award-winning author of six novels and three short story collections. Her fiction has appeared in The New Yorker, Atlantic, Harper's, and other publications. She lives and splits her time between New York City and Connecticut and spends as much time as she can here in Maine, and she teaches in the MFA program at Hunter College. Welcome to Talk of the Towns. Welcome back, Roxana. Thank you so much, Ron. What a pleasure to be here with you again. Sure. Well, we've talked about your other novels, but now um, I think it's um, this week, um, your new novel, Leaving, is coming out, published by W.W. Norton and Company. And it's very exciting to have read the novel and to have this conversation with you. Um, let's let me start with a, just a very brief int- uh, kind of introduction. And and as I read um leaving it tells a story that feels at the beginning very familiar it's a, a kind of a fairy tale of reconnection and then as it goes on um we're somewhat surprised that the tale turns very complex it has some darker shades over time and that's what engages us as readers we want real life we don't necessarily want fairy tales and and this is a really good example i think of of that the tension between our desire for something that's almost magic and things that are real and your novel um i think that does that very well tell us a little bit about the characters the two main characters sarah and Warren. Uh, they're both uh, very late middle age i guess you could say they've led full lives um Give us a little sketch of who these two uh, protagonists are. So when the book opens, Sarah and Warren are both 60 years old. And I don't know if that's late middle age or what, how to identify it, but that's, that's the age they are. And they had a very close relationship when they were in their late teens and when they went to college. Um, and they both grew up and lived in a place called the Main Line, which is a su- string of suburbs outside of Philadelphia. And um, when they were growing up there, it was very insular and very sort of tribal and closely knit. So everybody who lived there knew each other. Um, so they knew each other and had this relationship. And then because of something Warren does, which is kind of an innocuous, but it it sort of trips a tripwire in Sarah and she withdraws from him and, and moves away from him. And at that point they're in college and they're several hundred miles apart. He's at college in Maine actually. And she's in outside New York and the distance plus this suggestion that he's made um, lead to her breaking up with him. So they both marry other people and they meet up by chance at the opera house in New York city 
And he is still married to the same woman. And she was divorced and her ex-husband actually died. So she's very single and he's very married. He's a successful architect and she has worked in the art world her whole career um, as a curator and a um, and she's now a volunteer at a local museum. She lives in Westchester. He lives outside Boston. So this reconnection, yes, as you say, um, as soon as you say, some they this pair of lovers met years later, and guess what? They their connection starts up again. But what interested me about this story and what interests me about this phase of life is that. Um, a love story between people in their 60s is totally different from a love story between people in their 20s. When you're in your 20s, you are unencumbered by your family and your obligations. You've just started your career. You have no children. Your parents aren't telling you where to live or what to do. You're really, you're really a solitary um, proprietor of your life. But once you get to um, this this period when in your 60s, you've been living in one place for years. You, you are connected to that place. You have colleagues. You have a professional life. You're connected to that. And you have adult children. You may have um, older parents that you need to care for. Um, so you have this, this web of responsibilities that connects you to the exact place you are in the world. And if something tries to interfere with that, to move you, to shift that, you are not a single agent. You have to relate to all these filaments that connect you to to your obligations and your emotional connections. So um, that was what interested me, the the fact that as, as they reconnected emotionally, they were in a very different position from that in which they had been decades earlier. So the story was to, uh, the story leads through these complications and tries to figure out what two people who are of good, well-meaning and um, responsible people, honorable people, how they should negotiate these these complications. So you've described um, life having tendrils or connections to others when we're in a place. Um, perhaps you could describe Warren's family. Um, his daughter, Kat, and his wife, Janet, are the most kind of the significant characters in the novel. Um, and and Warren talks about the, this web of family relationships. Um, maybe describe them. And then if you'd like to read that section um, that Warren talks about family relationships, that would be great. Well, he married Janet um, after he finished college and he did some traveling and um, married her um, and is compatible in some ways, but in some ways they're not compatible. And he has never been able to share his intellectual life with her. So um, in many ways, they they work very well together. They're, she's practical. She's friendly. She's warm. She's loving. Um so they have been, stayed married for all this time, nearly 40 years, and they have one daughter, Kat, Katrina, who is um, wonderful, very energetic, um, very loving. Warren is very close to her, and she's kind of a wild card. She does what she wants. He connects to her um, through sports. They both love to watch basketball together, and she's a, a tempestuous fan 
Um, and so he he loves her energy and her um she's not really wild, but she's she's tempestuous and he loves that in her and it gives their family a a, a sort of fillip of energy and um excitement. So that's Kat, and she lives in Brooklyn, and she's a works in design and in techs in some way. Um, and Janet is um, a very well-meaning um, married woman who does philanthropic work, and she's on the board of a an organization that she takes very seriously, and she's very responsible to that. Um, so it's a it's a very sort of settled. Um, uh, conventional family, um, well, re- reasonably affluent, um, educated, and well-meaning, well-intended. Right. Would you like to read that um, short piece about uh, um, Warren's reflection on family relationships? I think it starts on 283. Um, so this is when he's offered Kat something and she's rejected it. As a parent, you were always the object of your children's anger. When eight, when Kat was eight, she had left a note for them. I have run away because you won't let me watch television. Goodbye. Love, Kat. <laughs> <laughs> Which they have framed and put in the bathroom. <laughs> um, all family relationships contained fury, but weren't, weren't they set on a foundation of love? That was established when you first held that tender body in your arms, when you first met that calm, otherworldly gaze, when you first felt that deep, visceral connection, so that later, when you had arguments, that foundation lay below. You could trust each other. Wasn't that how it was meant to work? Mm -hmm. We certainly recognize that. Um, any of us who are parents recognize that that uh, fury, <laughs> and we recognize the bond. The bond. Well, let's turn to Sarah and her family. Uh, she has um, Josh, a son, a daughter, Meg. Meg is married to Jeff. Um, talk a little bit about that. Um, those relationships. So, um, Josh is the son, and he lives in California, or he lives in. Sorry, he lives in the on the West coast. I can't wait to see. Um, and he is um, a very sort of mild, benevolent figure um, and also very distant. Uh, Sarah loves him, but has trouble really connecting with him very closely. Um, and her daughter Meg lives in New York and she works in the publishing industry and she ha- has a husband, Jeff and, and two children when the, when the book opens and she has a third child during the, the course of the narrative. Um, she's extremely busy. She's very loving, but um, but preoccupied. So Sarah has a hard time. Sarah would love to spend more time with her and hear from her more, but she is a busy adult child who doesn't can't spend a lot of time talking to her mother on the phone. So that also interested me, the way our relationship with our children changes. And when they are little, they are begging us for attention and begging us for the gaze turned on them and the ear there. And then when we're older, that relationship um, changes completely. So we're the ones who are saying, well, what did you do? And how are you feeling? And what's going on? And tell me about your life. Um, and they're too busy. They're they're right in the thick of their own lives. And they're they're not there to talk to us about what's going on. 
So that that interested me as a dynamic, that that shift, that reversal of roles. And Sarah, Sarah also reflects on um, children. Maybe you could read that short paragraph on uh, page uh, 50 when she talks about those tiny people, if you can find that one. Yeah. Those tiny people clinging to your leg, your hip, they complain, they whimper, they raise their arms to be picked up. They want to ride your hip to interrupt your conversation, pat your lips as you speak. They come into your bed when you are deeply asleep, burrowing into your conscious into your unconsciousness, demanding that you abandon your sleep, deliver your attention, prove your affection. They are burdensome, beloved. They want something all the time. They want your breath, your thoughts, your heart. They depend on you. You must give yourself over. It's you, the mother who knows about the world who lives in it. Sorry, it's you, the mother, who knows about the world, who lives in it, who must explain it to the child. Now it's the reverse. Now Meg doesn't depend on her mother for anything. She knows exactly how to live in the world. It's Sarah who waits for her daughter's words, her gaze, her thoughts, her words and attention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one more um, member of Sarah's family is um, her dog, Bella. Um, and um, Bella becomes a character um, that, uh, that is, is useful to us. We see the relationship of human to animal in a wonderful way. Perhaps you could, again, read a little bit of, of Bella, page 102, 103. And then I want to find out more about um, who Sarah is and what, what her life has been like. But talk about Bella first. So Bella is a, is a black standard poodle, which I don't tell you until very late in the book. I want you just to imagine the dog as a presence and as, a, as an emotional and intellectual presence. Bella's mission is to align herself with Sarah, to become neurally connected. She studies Sarah, watching for signs of intention. She knows all the commands, sit, lie down, shake hands, roll over. She despises them. They are beneath her. If commanded to sit, Bella will lower her haunches to where they graze the ground, then lift them immediately and stand, as though she had never sat down in her life. If asked to shake hands, she'll raise her paw impatiently, bat twice at the air, then set it down. At the command to roll over, she will throw herself to the ground and roll over in one swift motion like a dolphin, then leap to her feet, eyes flashing, insane with contempt and impatience. She does all these things quickly, her manner perfunctory and condescending, like a math genius asked to do short division at a party. She finds tricks pointless, embarrassing to all concerned. <laughs> That's great. I just remind our listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns. We're having a conversation with Roxana Robinson about her new novel, Leaving, published this month by W.W. Norton and Company. Um, so tell us a little bit more about Sarah. We don't know kind of what her life has been other than um, her family connections, but she has a very uh, full professional life as well. Sarah is um, has always worked in the art world. She's worked for years at a small museum in Westchester um, as a curator, and now she has sort of semi-retired and she's a volunteer 
um, at another museum where she is on the exhibition committee. So she's very much involved with putting together exhibitions, um, dealing with the idea of art in her in her life. So that's a big part of her life is her response to the visual world and a response to the ideas that are contained in art. And because Warren is an architect, they they have a, a lot of connection in terms of aesthetics, aesthetics in the world and and how art affects you. It's mm. it's a very rich part of their lives. So you just say you said earlier that they meet um, again um, as the novel opens um, at an opera. Um, what are some of the things that attract them? I, I suppose some of it is just remembering that deep connection that they had as young people. Yeah, I think if you if you meet someone with whom you've had a very close connection years before, that connection is immediately there if you want to acknowledge it. So, um, you know, the the first connection is usually visual. I mean, it's usually physical. You look at somebody and you're drawn to them or you're not. And she is drawn. She is attracted to Warren. She always was. And he does this thing of looking directly into her eyes which is a very powerful thing to do. And it's an unusual thing to do. Usually we sort of glance at people and look, look away as a, as a gesture of, of courtesy, really. It's, it's very demanding to look straight into somebody's eyes. And he's always done that and he does it again. And she feels sort of seen by him and recognized and also a, a bit invaded by him. And it's threatening to her and exciting and, she feels the same way that she had done in the past, that he is somehow examining her and invading her, but also loving her. He wants something from her. He wants to know her. He wants to become part of her interior life. So all of that is exciting and, and challenging to her. She has not had a close relationship in a number of years. She's very happy living a solitary life. She has friends. She has her wonderful dog. She has a beautiful house. And she has work that that engages her, and she has her children, so she doesn't. She's not looking for a man, and so when Warren appears, it's exciting but a little unsettling. She's not sure that she wants even to have a conversation with him. Mm. But and what and what but, does Warren want? Um, you described Warren's life as as relatively settled, um, but something's missing. What is it that he sees in Sarah that he wants to rekindle? Well, he remembers her as somebody with whom he could have these great conversations that they could talk about ideas, they could talk about the things that really engaged him. And of course, he was drawn to her physically, too. That was part of their relationship. So there she is at a place at the opera that engages both of them tremendously. And the opera is kind of a symbol of the art form that takes you um takes you over really it, it engages you on every level it's visual it's emotional it's oral um it's a it's a wonderful art form and it to oh, i open i don't know why i chose the opera to open it but once i had that it became clear to me that it is a great setting for something because it it, it immediately implies beauty a great um, attention to beauty and also possibly tragedy and certainly passion. Passion is the essence of opera. So there they are. She's alone. They're, they're both there because they love the opera, not because they've gone with friends or to be um, part of any kind of social group. They go be, because they both love it. And Tosca is a particularly engaging, passionate 
wild, beautiful opera. So I like that idea of them finding each other in this setting that that implies um, passion and beauty. Well, we might come back to Tosca um, later on in the conversation because Warren Warren draws on that um, later on in the in the novel. But uh, perhaps you could also kind of ground us in um, a reference that you've made to a writer that you've read certainly and taught, um, Edith Wharton. And there's a wonderful um, section on page seventy five. And perhaps you'd um, share that, and we can talk a little bit about why you wanted to uh, kind of reference um, Edith Wharton. Sarah is reading while she has lunch. She's now deep in rereading The Age of Innocence, in thrall to the doomed love affair between Ellen Olenska and Newland Archer. She loves this book, although she, she always hopes for a different ending. By the time Wharton wrote it, she'd changed her view of society. In the House of Mirth, society was merciless, but later Wharton saw it as benevolent. In the Age of Innocence, it protected the family, order, duty, honor. The two adulterous lovers whose passion challenged all those things sacrificed their own happiness to the greater good. The novel celebrated honor and renunciation, both of which are anachronistic now, Sarah thinks, Renunciation has no value. You're not supposed to sacrifice yourself for the common good or for someone else's happiness. You're supposed to put yourself first. Self-actualization, not self-sacrifice. The Puritans had put God first, not the individual. In Europe, they put community first. Now in America, it was the self. Your own happiness should be paramount. Honor was not considered. Mm. So t- tell us um, uh, a little bit about your your connection with Edith Wharton and and uh, your your appreciation of her as a writer and what she wrote about. Um, I'm a huge fan of of Wharton. She, she's first of all, she's a, a masterful stylist. She's she's just an exquisite writer, and she she um, explores the idea of honor and the obligation the individual has to the ideal of honor. Um, and it's very much a part of the House of Mirth, and it's very much a part of the Age of Innocence, which I think are her two great novels. Um, and it's it's what the what the individual has to um, the the obligation that the individual has to an ideal that they find for themselves. And how can you live with yourself? What do you what do you ask of yourself to be a good person in the world? To be the person you, you want to be. Um, and so that's something that's very. Um, salient in Wharton's novels. And in The Age of Innocence, it's about um, a a man, Newland Archer, who marries a woman called May, and they're both very much a part of the old New York society. And May is a little bit like Warren's wife, Janet. She's good-humored, good-natured, well-intentioned, but she's not a genius. And that part of Newland's life is never going to be explored. Before he meets her, while he's before he marries her, while well, he's still engaged to her and has been accepted by the whole family, he um, meets Ellen Olenska, who was a member of the New York society world, but she married an, a foreigner, an Italian count, who's abandoned her. So she is a divorced, a single, sort of scarlet woman, turned up again in New York, 
and they fall in love. And so the question is, how can he navigate this passage? How can he um, admire, maintain the, his own presence as the person he admires and um, figure out a way to deal with both of the, these women in his life? And so that passage, that question, that interrogation of the the idea of honor was what what drew me to include it in the book. Mm. And so this is Sarah's reflection. Um, she's reading um, and and thinking about honor. And then let's go back to that uh, notion of Tosca. And Warren, later in the novel, um, talks about um, Tosca and the characters moved by passion and honor. Um, I think there's a reading on page 316, if you could turn to that yeah, kind of kind of get Warren's um, perspective on this on this question through um, his uh, attention to Tosca. Yeah, so it's something that that interests um, and engages uh, Warren as well. So this is a conversation that he's having. Uh, so Warren is talking to his wife Janet, and she doesn't understand really what a tragedy is. She reads a lot of a fiction that has. Um, deaths in it and she thinks that makes it a tragedy and and um she says she says about one of her books no it really is like one of your operas it's a tragedy he doesn't answer and she says teasing you don't agree but why isn't it a tragedy like an opera after a moment he replies so in an opera the tragedy involves passion and honor some deep passion drives the character and then there's a crisis, and then honor demands death, rather than leading a life of dishonor. It has to include passion and honor. Passion and honor, Janet says. That's just the kind of thing you like to say, Warren. She laughs at him. What do you mean, though? What do you really mean by honor? He smiles back. A moral code. Holding yourself to a certain standard. You make a commitment. In a tragedy, the characters will die rather than break a promise, a promise to themselves. Sometimes it's a promise to love. Tosca commits suicide because her lover is executed. She refuses to conceive of a life without him. And then Sarah is grappling with this honor, uh, this notion of honor, and she feels that she has a, a relation, a moral responsibility um, with regards to to Warren's marriage. She's she's single. Um, he's married, well-established. Um, and again, uh, we'll go back to the novel, perhaps starting um, on page 298. She'd do it again, moving on to 299, to give us, again, Sarah's reflection on her responsibility. So she, this is Sarah thinking about um, what's happening in, in Warren's family, and his daughter has just gotten married. Sarah will never know what Cat wore, how Warren looked. She is banned from that family's life forever. She can never again look at it through Warren's gaze. In that family's life, she is anathema. She actually had been anathema to them. Because of her, the family had nearly split apart. But she doesn't think she's bad or immoral. She's read that convicted murderers think of themselves as good. It's true that her presence had nearly split the family. But surely it was Warren who brought, who bore the moral responsibility for the family, not her. 
Was it her fault that Warren had fallen in love with her? What were her moral obligations toward his marriage? Though she doesn't quite trust this line of reasoning, she had always refused to go out with other men, other married men, on principle. But what was the principle? She wouldn't be involved in someone else's ethical landscape. But in Warren's case, she had allowed that principle to bend. How did she justify that? She had no justification. The other woman was always blamed for adultery. Because women are the vessels of morality? Are they expected to have higher moral standards than men? Maybe she should have turned away because he was married. And in fact, she had always done that before. But she had known Warren from before. That was why this was different. She wasn't starting a new relationship. She was continuing an unfinished one. She'd been wrong to end it as she had. She'd felt an obligation to set things right. And there was also the intoxicating current of his presence, the depth of his gaze, the power of his attention. She'd do it again. Mm. Mm. Well, we're having a conversation here on Talk of the Town with Roxana Robinson about her no new novel, Leaving, published by W.W. W. Norton um, this month, um, 2024. And uh, so as we think about um, the the characters, each you've just you've said each of them has has a place. They're already kind of locked into place. And so when you bring a new relationship and you struggle with that notion of place, both Sarah and to some extent Warren are, are saying, would I give up my place for um, this other person? Um, and they both struggle with that. But uh, um, rather than go to the struggle, let's ask you to talk a little bit about place as you've kind of conceived it, both for Sarah and then um because you're connected to Maine and Mount Desert Island, we'll ask you a little bit more to, uh, to read something uh, from the novel uh, about Mount Desert Island. But start with Sarah. What is she? What is her place? Um, her her home. She lives in northern Westchester in a very rural pocket of it, and she has a house that she's lived in for thirty years or so. That's where her children were raised. She feels very very closely connected to the house itself, which is. Not an old one, but it's sort of built in as a pseudo French Norman style house. Um, and she loves it. And there's an orchard, and then it over the land overlooks the reservoir. So it's a huge body of water that she feels very, very closely connected to. She walks there all the time and watches the light on the water and the wind on the water. And it gives her a connection to the natural world that she f- is deeply, deeply. Um, closely connected to. Uh, so that place that she has and that she finds as a refuge and a haven and it's beautiful and she she has set up her daughter's old bedroom as her office, but she hasn't gotten rid of any of her daughter's furniture. So um, she's put in a card table for her to work at, but she loves going there because for her, it's like visiting her daughter. Um, so the house itself is as a very important part of part of her life um, and then and then you... she she brings Warren there and and uh, they walk down to the the water and I think she's hoping that he'll feel the same magic um that she does yeah certainly she yeah. thinks it's self-evident as soon as he sees the place he will recognize how greatly she loves it and how close she is and how it's it's really a part of her life right 
Right. So, and then Warren, um, he's not going to try to bring her to Boston, but he does have a, a you know special connection to Mount Desert Island, um, as you do. <laughs> um, and perhaps uh, again, it's 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 wonderful to read um, someone who understands what it is to live here, as I do, um, and and this how special it is. Maybe you'd read a little bit from from page two. Uh, 323, um, when Warren gets up and he's uh, he's going to go into Acadia National Park. Warren gets up. He wants to be on the mountain before anyone else. Much of the point of climbing is solitude. A certain deep joy derives from being alone at the summit, where you stand turning slowly, turning and turning, taking in the wild circular view, your face brushed by the clean silent wind that touches nothing else. You must be alone, not among garrulous strangers asking if you had done this before or if you were ever scared along the sheer parts. Mm, wonderful. Well, this this novel, um, I love one of the, the blurbs that uh, that uh, you, you and your publisher are using to describe it. It's from Geraldine Brooks, the author of Horse. And um, it, it says, what does love demand of us and who must pay the price? Leaving, the novel we're talking about, is a searing interrogation of honor and passion. It dissects the hidden cost of the choices we make and the consequences with which we must endeavor to live. Wonderful, <laughs> um, and you obviously uh, connect with that with that uh, um, review of uh, by a, an author you respect. Do you want to say anything more about um, and how you you came to that and how Geraldine kind of related to the to the novel? Oh, um, Geraldine, Geraldine and I were together on a panel at a writer's conference and um, we read each other's work and had a wonderful conversation and she read leaving and, and sent us that quote. So we were, we were, she really gets it. Great. <laughs> That's really great. the essence of the book. So it was a great way to have someone else validate the, our understanding of it. Great. Well, all of your novels um, that I've um, had the pleasure of talking with you about going back to cost in 2008, Sparta, 2013, and more recently, Dawson's Fall, all of these and leaving probe the bonds of family and how those relationships are pushed and pulled, strengthened and clarified in the face of the woundedness of addiction and war, in the case of, of uh, earlier novels, played out in the turmoil of national polit political upheaval, in the case of Dawson's Fall, in the uh, Reconstruction era after the Civil War. And there are conflicts uh, around beliefs and values. So you've been curious about these family connections through the writing of these novels. What um, tell tell us more about this curiosity? What what kind of interests you about these family relationships? Well, I think the role of fiction is really to give us a a, a lens through which we can view the way life really is. And um, each novelist gives us a lens at that particular moment, what life is like right then. So if we read Anna Karenina, we learn not only what it's like to for a woman to be fatally attracted to someone she's not married to, we also learn a lot about late 19th century Russia, the politics of it, the the feelings of 
connect the the social strata that existed the way um the way russia had a, a deep connection to france and the aristocrats spoke french and rather than russian all sorts of social um details are are um communicated in that book but the real power of it lies in the family connections that are that are made and and tolstoy was deeply invested in the idea of family so for Madame Bovary, the, the great tragedy of that book lies in the family, how she, Emma's actions devastated her family, destroyed her family, in fact. Um, so it, King Lear is about family. A- Oedipus Rex is about family. The great stories that we depend on as civilizations are connected to, are, are the stories of families. And historically, they were often the families of kings because that that story would affect the entire country. So it was of more import than the story of commoners. But um, every family is its own kingdom, and every family has passion and devastation, woundedness, grief, love, deep affection, trust. All those things take place within the bonds of the family. And so every every issue that um, attracts me and confuses me and makes me want to explain it to myself is connected to family because that's where our feelings are the most powerful. That's that's the crucible for everyone, no matter what our professional lives are, and they engage us to a tremendous extent. There's nothing so wounding or so supportive and powerful as the feelings that we have within the family. Mm. So first you're a reader and then a writer is that how <laughs> you know you you're you're referencing these and you're, the windows that you describe into these um other worlds these other families then causes you to ask about what you've seen in in life and what you want well, to write about the things that attract me to write about are things as i say that confuse me or trouble me things that i have to work out for myself and the way those issues are always worked out is through the 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 mechanism of a family so that um, my second novel, This Is My Daughter, was about um, the issue of divorce and remarriage and that that was going on. I wrote that in the 90s and I, what I was seeing around me was lots and lots of people who had shed their first marriages, reconnected again, were trying to set up, create a second family that involved children from both families and how complicated that is. Um, so that was... That was the story I was trying to understand and tell. Cost is about addiction and Alzheimer's. Those two things were were very um, powerful to me, and I, I wanted to explore them. Sparta was written because I was so troubled by what we were doing as a country. We were sending people over to Iraq without really proper training or equipment, and we were making them into warriors. And then how were they to re-enter c- civilian life? And that's all told through the story of a, of a particular family, a particular person. So it's um, the way we we understand the world is through stories about other people with whom we identify. And the purpose of great fiction, I'm not identifying myself as a great fiction writer, but great fiction, what what it does is allow us to empathize with people who are not ourselves. And so that's what I am trying to do is allow myself to identify with someone very different from myself in a situation that is one that troubles and 
disturbs and confuses me, something that I need to make sense of. Mm. So I go into another family, another community, and try to work out a situation that um, that I need to work out. Mm. So that empathy um, that novels, um, great fiction um, engenders in us, then is a key or at least partial key to understanding ourselves and and the dilemmas and the confusions that we face. Yes, it allows us to understand ourselves. And it also gives us a kind of humility. Once you realize that your way is not the only way, that somebody very different from you is going to be in a different situation, one that you can't understand and you can't correct, you are simply, all you can do is sympathize. You can't fix it. And you can't tell them to do something else because it's beyond you. Once you realize that there are things beyond you, it changes you. Mm. So I am trying to investigate things that are beyond me and Mm. and learn how to sympathize with them. Mm. Well, I think folks who um, pick up leaving will find um, a great deal to empathize with (laughs) um, as they struggle with these characters. Um, You got to start um, in your writing with a biography of Georgia O'Keeffe. Um, and recently we've kind of do, done some updating. Could you tell us a little bit about you know, your kind of connection to Georgia O'Keeffe and, and, and what this work um, did for you as, as a, as a writer, how did that kind of teach you about writing about, uh, you know, the, the world of, of being a writer of being a researcher um, and say more about that, if you would. Well, um, Georgia O'Keeffe was not my first book. It was my second. I had written a, a book, a novel called Summer Light before that, which is also set mostly on Mount Desert Island, actually. Um, but I had worked in the art world. I worked for Sotheby's in the American painting department. And I really fell in love with American art and loved working there. I was a cataloger, which meant that I picked up the paintings in my hands, examined the brushwork, examined the state of the canvas, the signature. Um, It it was a very visceral connection that I was allowed to have with American art. And I started writing about American art. Um, Although I didn't have a graduate degree, I still was given some standing because I worked for Sotheby's. So I started writing for different publications about American art. And I was particularly interested in the modernists. And I wrote about other members of that group, um, Arthur Dove and a number of them. I would have loved to have written about O'Keefe at that time. It was in the 70s. She was still alive. But she had set up a very um, rigorous kind of obstruction, um, an obstacle course, so that she rarely gave interviews, you couldn't interview her. And um, there were, there were, she had copyright on many of her paintings, so that you couldn't even write about her and illustrate the your writing. So there, um, without getting permission, very arduously, picture by picture through her agent. So there was very little written about her, even though she was one of the great American painters and certainly arguably the the greatest American woman painter ever. Um, But there was very little written about her. And I couldn't write about her because of these obstacles. So, But I met her at that time and I sold her paintings and I knew her agent. So I felt very close to her. um, And I write about this in the introduction, the new introduction to this new version of the of the book. but I was also writing fiction at the time and uh, trying to get that published. And then I 
left Sotheby's, worked at another gallery, and then moved out of the city and into um, northern Westchester and focused on my fiction. But one day, my husband came home from work. He worked in New York, and he said, I've just come out um, on the train with a friend of ours who was the editor-in-chief at Harper and Row. And he said, um, Georgia O'Keeffe has just died, and there isn't a big biography of her. Who should we get to write it? And Tony said, well, you should ask Roxana. And Edward said, well, I know Edward uh, Roxana writes fiction, but we need someone who knows about American art. And Tony said, actually, Roxana does know about American art. <laughs> so he came home and told me that. And I said, well, that's very nice. Thank you for suggesting me. But um, Edward is the head of Harper and Row. It's a huge publishing house. They will want someone who's an expert on on Georgia O'Keeffe. They'll get someone who has a PhD or something. So he was just being polite because we're friends. He He's not going to ask me. But if he did ask me, I have quit writing about art. I've now started publishing my fiction. I have a novel coming out. I've, I'm publishing my short stories. And I can't do both. I can't be an art historian and a fiction writer. So I'm quitting. I've quit writing about fiction. So A, he's not going to ask me. And B, if he did ask me, I would say no. And Tony said, well, I just thought I'd tell you. And I said, thank you, but it's not going to happen. And that was on Friday. And on Monday, Edward called me and said, would you be interested in writing the biography of Georgia O'Keeffe? And I said, yes. <laughs> wonderful. Wonderful. Oh, great. And, so that, and was a, that was a baptism by fire. Um, it's like the, your first job in politics as president of the United States. So I had to, I did not have a graduate degree. I did not know how to do research or conduct interviews or anything. So I was insanely conscientious. I was so determined that nobody would call this book unscholarly. I was just fanatical about citations and quotes and uh, research. I did hire a, a research assistant who was great. Um, and I talked to a friend of mine who was a therapist, and I said, how do I do interviews? What questions should I ask? And how do I not get how do I get people to relax? So she was my my um, supporter in that. Um, anyway, it was it was a great great adventure. It was a wonderful opportunity, and and makes me very happy to have done it. And then I went back to fiction. We're talking with Roxana Robinson here on Talk of the Towns about her new novel, Leaving, and other writings. We've just heard from her talking about her biography. Georgia O'Keeffe um, was uh, first published in 1999 and then uh, republished 1989 and then um, um, later on with a new forward just recently recently what did what did the the research and the writing about Georgia O'Keeffe do for your fiction writing did that influence how you approached fiction at all no I think it's probably the reverse um, my writing style is the same and I really wrote the book. I mean, it was in some ways it was wonderful. It's like writing a novel, but you you're given the characters and the plot, so all you have to do is set it down. So my writing style is still the same. And my daughter was at college when it came out in Berkeley, um, so she was very far away. And she said she read um, a few pages of the book every night because she could hear my voice, mm. Mm. which was nice. But I I think it's. I think it's the same. I mean, I describe landscapes and settings in the same way that I do in, in novels. The only thing I couldn't do was dialogue because I felt as a bi biographer, 
um, my obligation was to be absolutely truthful and you can't, nobody remembers exactly what people say. So, mm. so I, I, that was the only thing I wasn't allowed to do um, as a biographer, which I would do as a fiction writer. And how about the intersection between your teaching um, and writing? Um, you teach literature and 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 the uh, the great fiction as you as you describe it. What's that intersection like for you? How does that show up in your teaching, for instance, or how does the teaching show up in your in your novels, if at all? Um, uh, let's see. I don't. I think they're separate. Um, it, I love teaching these great books. I teach Madame Bovary, Anna Karenina, some Chekhov, often House of Mirth, um, to the Lighthouse. And each time I read these books, and I read them each each time I teach them, um, I am struck again by the beauty of the prose and the power of these stories, the depth of engagement of these authors. Um, and they remain sort of icons in my own writing life. Flaubert, I find really confusing. He's kind of wonderful, but I think he doesn't know what he's doing. He makes statements that are visibly untrue. Um, and so that confusion is part of the, the, the magic of that book. The reason that we're still reading it, reading it 150 years later, he claims to, to despise all his characters, but clearly, if he really did despise them, we would not still be reading that book. So what is it that's going on there? What what What's happening for him? So I'm engaged by them every time I read them. I don't think they influence my writing, I think, um, but they certainly engage me intellectually every time I read them. Hmm. You're involved in a, a, a new project, um, a collaborative project called 14 Days with an introduction by Margaret Atwood, um, a hero of many of us. Um, tell us a little bit about that collaboration. So this was a wonderful, wonderful idea of Doug Preston, who is um, a former president of the Authors Guild. And he conceived of this brilliant notion of um, a sort of a, a, a collaborative novel drawn on the pandemic. So it's meant to be 14 days of residents of a New York City building who meet upstairs on the roof. And each night somebody tells a different story. And the stories are all anonymous. So you you have to you have to search through the book to find out who wrote what. But they're um wonderful. I think there are 28 of them um, from all sorts of different writers. Um, and Doug stitched them all together and came up with this idea. And there's another editor who who wrote this sort of um interstitial passages but uh it's a wonderful kind of romp um and as i say the brainchild of doug preston and then margaret he got margaret to get involved in it as well so it's it's really a a wonderful project and that's coming out relatively soon here in february very soon yes february 6th i think Great. And then finally, um, you just mentioned uh, Doug's connection to the Authors Guild, and you've been um, very much a part of that um, uh, professional organization. Um, And more recently, talking a little bit about um, artificial intelligence, and maybe we'll close with some of your reflections on that, your passion about um, how authors get treated in this new world. Um, Tell us a little bit more if you could. So the issue of artificial intelligence is another iteration of the way technology is threatening the lives and and livelihoods of authors. 
And um, because we're so used to things being free on the internet, the internet is essentially free. Um, that has worked against authors and their work has been used um, and sort of um, scraped, as they say. And in, in terms of artificial intelligence, the um, the robots, or I don't know how to define them, the, the, the artificial brains have been trained on the work of authors work in copyright without their permission and without compensation. And because of that training, that's why you can get a sensible paragraph from chat GBT and ask them to write a poem in the style of Margaret Atwood. And they will do it because they have read her work without permission and because they are using it without permission and without compensation and so it's like stealing intellectual property. So the Authors Guild is um, taking a very forceful role in this and saying, you've used our work without compensation. You must address this and you must respond to the fact that you you have been using our our work. This It's like taking somebody's physical, you know, the product, phys- product of a physical work and using it without paying for it. So... Um, we're bringing this to the attention of the public and to the Congress and trying to um, reconcile this situation. Mm. And if you were, if listeners were to, to uh, uh, respond, where would they find out more? Could they go to the Authors Guild um, website and find out more about this issue? Absolutely. Go to our website and you'll see um, articles that we have written, papers that we have written, and also paper. Art- there are lots of articles in newspapers, which we'll cite. Um, and we're, we're bringing this to the attention of the companies and to Congress. So we'll try to create some kind of redress. Great. Great. Well, we're coming to the end of our hour. Um, this has been a wonderful conversation with Roxana Robinson about her new novel, Leaving, uh, published, I think, this month, uh, February uh, 2024. Um, thank you so much for being with us, Roxana. Thank you, Ron. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Great. Well, we have come to the end of the hour. Be sure and join us from 4 to 5 on the second Wednesday afternoon of each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our programs can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. If you have comments or suggestions for other topics, please email us at news.weru.org. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our guest, um, Roxana Robinson, author most recently of Leaving, published by the at Norton. Thank you. Um, And thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Joel Mann for engineering our program. Stay tuned for Ralph Nader Radio from 5 to 6 and The Groove Shop from 6 to 8. Liz Graves and I are producers and hosts for Talk of the Towns. And this is Ron Beard wishing you a good afternoon.